In this podcast episode, we want to introduce you to our BCEN friend, Chris Ramos. Come along as Michael Dexter and Holly Briggs talk with Chris about his career in pre-hospital medicine and nursing. Chris has been instrumental in moving the benchmarks for pediatric pre-hospital care and offering the most up-to-date continuing education. This episode is called Walking the Line for Quality Pediatric Pre-Hospital Care. Hello, and welcome to the BCN and Friends podcast, where we hold interesting conversations about learning with a range of thought leaders, BCN certification holders, and industry professionals, but most importantly, to create value and insight for you, our professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. We hope you find our discussions interesting, informative, sometimes funny, sometimes serious, and always valuable. I'm Holly Briggs, a professional development specialist at BCN and one of your hosts for today. I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Dexter, Director of Professional Development at BCEN. Hi, Michael. Hey, Holly. It's great to be with you and Chris today. It's great to have y'all. In this episode of BCN and Friends, we have Chris Ramos. Chris is a registered nurse paramedic with a passion for pediatrics and pre-hospital care. He's leveraged this passion and expertise to create an entire annual EMS conference to facilitate pediatric education to pre-hospital providers. He knows a thing or two about pushing the bounds of advocacy, and I can't wait to hear more. Michael, can you please introduce us to our BC and friend, Chris? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I uh, have not met Chris in person yet, but every time we talk, I just have a really good conversation. So I'm looking forward to the podcast today. Chris is a master's prepared registered nurse. He's also a paramedic and has a broad base of critical care experience, including ground and air ambulance pre-hospital care adult and pediatric emergency departments, pediatric cardiovascular ICU, PICU, NICU, leadership, everything under the sun. Chris has done it or he can if you give him enough time to. He currently serves as the base hospital coordinator at Phoenix Children's, and Chris's daily focus is to improve pre-hospital care for children by bringing Phoenix Children's expertise to emergency responders through continuing education, patient follow-up, and operations consultations. Chris is the founder and chair of the Phoenix Children's Annual EMS Conference, which provides pre-hospital providers with current pediatric trauma and emergency care continuing education. Chris also serves as vice chair of the Arizona Department of Health Services Pediatric Advisory Council for Emergency Services, a committee that plays a lead role within Arizona's EMS and trauma community to improve patient pediatric care. Chris, welcome to the BCN and Friends podcast. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Pleasure is all mine, Michael and Holly. Nice meeting you, and thank you for having me. Yeah, so we're uh, happy to have you here, and you've done a lot, like I mentioned. And you know, without getting too far into detail with some things, just tell us like what led you from uh, starting a healthcare career up to doing everything under the sun out there in Phoenix. I wish I could say this is my intention, but uh, I'll try to con- make it as concise as possible. I- I was an athlete in high school and I thought that I would play, you know, college, college sports, potentially professionally. And that just didn't work out for me a number of reasons why, but I always struggled academically. It was never my strength. I think part of it, I just never challenged myself. And so once I got married very young at 20, I realized I needed to help help provide. So uh, I decided to become a, you know, maybe a firefighter. So I went to EMT school. And from there, it hooked me. It saved me, I like to say. So from there, I became a paramedic. I flew for several years, became a a nurse, associate degree nurse, a bachelor's degree, and then a master's and then certifications. And I got into leadership. So yeah, I would like to say it saved me. I'm not sure what I would be doing outside of this because it really 
caused me to, to be more diligent in academia. So. And what led you to pediatrics specifically? Because I know, you know, you've worked in both adult and pediatric centers, but why peds? A lot of nurses run away from kids. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's because I had children, you know, so young. I had 23. I had my first child. I have three children that are teenagers now. You know, I'd like to think, you know, working in, in paramedicine, you don't see a lot of kids. When I did, generally, they were much more sick than the average adult. So I think that I just saw a great need. Maybe it's that inse- provider insecurity that I had, but I started working in a PICU. That was my first nursing job. And I had great mentorship, great mentorship from nurses that had been doing it for 30, 35 years, something that you don't see right now, I don't think. I just don't see that tenure of nurses, but they they really inspired me. They really inspired me, especially in a critical care setting where really nurses can do a lot of interventions. They can anticipate, they can escalate things very, very quickly, have fairly broad standing orders in the PICU. I think that's what it was. And from there, from there, I just kind of grew passionately about it. And I started working in every setting. Wow. I mean, as Michael said, a lot of nurses, when you ask them like, oh, you know, what's your favorite population? I'm going to be honest, peds is not normally the one that I get like a ton of hand raises, which I find ironic since we were all kids at one point and we all need somebody to care for us, right? Otherwise we wouldn't have made it to adulthood. So the fact that you bought into it based upon what you saw modeled to you, you know, that ability to jump in and intervene and initiate care and do things that really do impact the patient outcome and that you, you know, you decided, yeah, oh, I, I like this. I want to, I want to be a part of this. And I think it's super interesting that your background as a paramedic and then nursing, you've overlapped that really. You brought expertise from both and you're using it in your current role, obviously. I guess one of the questions I'm interested to hear your response to is where do you see the biggest gaps in EMS and ED relations? And what are some recommended steps that you've done or you would recommend to those listening to kind of bridge those gaps between those two worlds? Sure. As I said before, I mean, EMS exposure or pre-hospital exposure to pediatric patients are fairly rare. I mean, I, I think the, the literature, the most it says is 10% of the calls. Some say 6%, as small as 6%. And so not being exposed to something, not being trained on it, especially in Phoenix. Phoenix Children's has so many specialties. They're discharging kids in the community with special health care needs, sometimes very, you know, very rare, almost unheard of anomalies or dysmorphologies. And so for EMS to keep up with that is almost impossible. So I, when I first got to Phoenix Children's Hospital, there was a lot of opinions of the care. And I've always, I've always kept to this motto or this saying, without data, it's just your opinion. So I kind of began to keep data and I I have five years of audits that I have done and have kind of determined, you know, looking at national data as well, comparing it to that, what EMS really struggles with. And I've identified those and I recognize that that's some of Phoenix Children's Hospitals or Children's Hospital strengths. And so taking those providers, help letting them help me with education and slide decks and outreach, and then taking that to the EMS community um, to really bridge the gaps. I think the gap would be just lack of awareness, lack of exposure, lack of training. And Phoenix Children's has 
fortunately helped me to to bridge that gap. They just have such solid expertise there. It's just so broad. So let me ask you something, Chris. When you're when you're working to bridge these gaps between the hospital and EMS, how is that often perceived by either side? Is it normally, is there a lot of people that you're finding are really um, in tune with trying to make process improvements and grow these things? Do you find a lot of resistance? And if so, how have you worked to try to overcome some of that? Yeah, that's, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question, Michael. There have been barriers. When I go to teach, I rarely start by providing my credentials. The reason I do not think that's necessarily important and potentially detrimental to what I'm going to, you know, subsequently going to teach after I introduce myself. Many people, especially in the EMS community, teach based on their experience. You know, I've been a captain for 30 years. I, I've done this for 40 years. I really try to keep to evidence-based medicine. I really try to keep to, to current guidelines. So one of the barriers is, is really overcoming, you know, unfortunately, people's experiences compared to what the data shows, right? For example, uh, the SEMSO is the National Associate of EMS State Officials. And long story short, it's a, it's a special group that brings all community stakeholders involved in pediatric medicine, and they come up with guidelines. And they're evidence-based, they have hyperlinks, uh, performance metrics, documentation metrics. They're really helpful if you're trying to establish maybe an audit program in EMS. For me, they've been extremely helpful. For cardiac arrest for pediatric and adults, it talks about the need for high-quality CPR. And it talks about when you choose to transport children or adults in the back of an ambulance, CPR quality diminishes. It's also dangerous to, to motorists, to the EMS provider standing in the back of an ambulance trying to perform quality chest compressions. But one of the things it says is, is that resuscitation of the cardiac arrest victim should be done on as close to the scene as operationally possible. Essentially, don't transport. And in one of their goals, the third goal, it says that you should, you know, the goal to have ROSC or termination of care on scene. And it kind of implies that you should not be transporting the cardiac arrest victim without ROSC. And, you know, I, 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 one of the metrics that I personally look at is how long did EMS stay on scene? And so if you're staying on scene for, for one minute, that implies to me that you're picking this child up, running them to an ambulance, not doing high quality chest compressions, not doing good BLS, not achieving ventilation. Oftentimes you're not measuring anything by end CO2. And unfortunately, there's bad outcomes. And one thing that I have discovered, it's provider insecurity, just not being exposed to pediatrics. So, you know, telling EMS, stay on scene with a pediatric cardiac arrest victim. You have everything that an ER can do. And that's one of the presumptions that Nesemso talks about is the care should be considered equivalent to that of hospital providers. That's really hard to overcome, really, really hard to overcome. And so what we do is we provide high fidelity simulation we have actors, whether it be law enforcement or police officers, trying to get people to move to the hospital. And so one of the things we simulate and one of the things we train for is providers on scene, quickly gaining rapport with families, advocating for staying on scene. Because there is a point if it's unsafe, you do need to leave the scene to get to a safer place to resuscitate. And the SEMSO talks about that in their guidelines. But that, Michael, that is a, a tremendous barrier. 
tremendous barrier in every class that I teach and um, it can be difficult. And this is one of the reasons I do not cite my credentials because my credentials shouldn't matter when it comes to glide guidelines, right? Um, so I'm not sure if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. It does. And, um, you know, you kind of gave me a good segue there into my next question for you, which was when you when you teach these things, you know, you're obviously going to, I'm assuming, fire stations or fire departments or meetings and things like this. But now you've taken that even further to have this conference that we mentioned at the beginning, and you're one of the planners for that. So can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to expand beyond meeting with individual departments and create this entire conference? And then what the focus is there? Is it all evidence-based? Is it more collaborative-based? Like what, what are you doing at these conferences? That's a great question, Michael. Thank you. This is a good opportunity for the conference. One of the ways that I think, in my opinion, the, the best ways to teach people is really gaining rapport with them, uh, establishing a relationship with them. And from there, you can kind of have the tough conversations because when I do quality assurance audits, a lot of times those audits don't identify what actually went on scene. The charting is not going to indicate, you know, there was a, a senior captain on scene that didn't want to do this regardless of the guy that didn't feel comfortable and nobody wanted to advocate for the patient because they felt intimidated by the captain. That's not going to come up in audits. It's going to come out in individual conversations. And so if I'm able to establish a trust and rapport with these individual providers, the audits, really, the audits are going to, it's going to show something that the audit doesn't, like what actually occurred on scene. And from there, you can train accordingly, right? We Maybe we'll put a captain in scene. So the reason I bring that up the conference is because that, that conference is a major networking event. It's amazing how 700 people can get a room, get in a room and know each other, know each other. And I, I really try to talk to as many people as possible throughout the year, our sponsors, other stakeholders that are not just doing their 10, maybe to provide uh, donations and things like that. Essentially, the conference is is, is evidence-based. We, we really look at trends, national trends. We try not to replicate, although really the things that AMS struggles with come down to four or five issues every year. We really try to expand on them, um, bring in credible speakers for the first, this is the first year we're bringing a national speaker to speak, and, and next year we'll bring in three it is collaborative in the sense where everybody's coming and everybody kind of knows this is what Phoenix Children's is likely going to talk about. It's Chris Ramos advocating for, you know, treating the cardiac arrest victim on scene. Again, I'm kind of known for that. Or one thing they really struggle is the recognition of non-convulsive or subclinical seizures. They know we're going to speak on that. That's something we always do. Pediatric airway management, we really advocate for not intubating kids if, if absolutely necessary. You can achieve effective ventilation through other means. But yeah, it's both collaborative and evidence-based. But it, it's amazing to see how 700 people, I'll say it again, know each other. And it's it, to me that in the end, those relationships are going to be key. Because even if you're you know an entry-level paramedic and you're just starting out, if you're coming to these conferences, hopefully it inspires you to get into CQI or to you know to, to advance or promote in your career. And remember the relationships we have in it. It's just there's people that are chiefs now. And they'll call and say, hey, can you work with our department? We just did PALS for and tra simulation training for an entire fire department. And that's from a relationship that I had in New Mexico in 2006, a captain that retired. And I have a relationship with him and we have shared values. And he ended up contacting me with this CQI expert in Seattle. And that person's going to come speak at our conference. And that would not have happened if it wasn't for relationships. And so hopefully that answers your question. It did, actually. I... 
I'm glad that Michael asked it in such a way that it led you down that path to talk about. Yes, I think we all attend continuing education conferences in the hopes that we, you know, have takeaways and practice things that we can come back and apply clinically. And I think that those, you know, really should be the main goal. There's also that secondary um, benefit, which can turn out to be those long-term relationships and people who you can call and say, Hey, (laughs) I'm running into this challenge. I'm running into this wall. Help me talk me through it. And just getting that kind of advice. Sometimes it's, you know, those who've been doing a little bit longer, uh, or sometimes it's those people who are kind of right where you're at and they're facing other things. And it's that mutual understanding of what you're trying to achieve. And I think that plays a huge role in moving forward, right? Keeping that forward progress, keeping your momentum going. Uh, Yeah. I I think you spoke very well to what you're trying to achieve at your annual conference. And I'm super excited. I know it's coming up, right? uh, we're, We're excited for you guys. I can't wait to hear some more about it. You mentioned earlier that you went to EMT, paramedic, nurse, um, your associates, bachelor's, master's. You also hold several national certifications, your CCRN, your CPEN. Why would you say, especially based on all of the things that I'm seeing and hearing from you, why is it important to you to be that lifelong learner? Speak to anyone that knows me or my children. I'm kind of a, a broken record that replays myself. And I'll consistently say that if you're in an interview and you're asked what your weakness is, the only answer, in my opinion, is knowledge deficit especially in medicine. Medicine is, as we both know, constantly changing. I mean, I could step away from Phoenix Children's and in six months, there's going to be changes. So it's important to be a lifeline learner because all of us have a knowledge deficit. I've always said things like humility is looking at resources outside of yourself. There's like this fine line between confidence, arrogance. But I think that One of the ways you know somebody is humble is are they looking at resources outside of themselves, whether it's mentorship, national certifications, furthering your education, clinical guidelines. Humility needs to be there. So I I would like to think if I am I a humble person? Yes, I'm confident in what I do, but am I a humble person? Then I'm a lifelong learner. I think that those are synonymous. I uh, think you're definitely representing that well. (laughs) You see, I mean, in the times that we've talked before, I, I think you have a really good uh, finger on the pulse of what needs to happen to promote and improve the profession of nursing, profession of paramedicine, EMS, firefighter. So uh, thank you for pushing yourself to be a lifelong learner in order to improve the care of others and the profession of so many others. So I think you're doing an awesome job. And, you know, obviously you're impacting a lot of people, but one question we like to ask everybody is who has impacted you, whether it's a patient whether it's a previous coworker or a previous mentor, is there anybody in particular that looking back on your career, you can say that was a, that was a really big deal to me. Yeah. Another anecdote, I actually have it written on my desk at work, but it says the only way you can truly show that you care about something is spending personal time with them. So looking back over my career, when I first got into improving pre-hospital care for kids, when Phoenix Children's applied, to become a base hospital, it requires you to have a coordinator. And there's a physician, she actually is at New Orleans at a children's hospital there now, but she is one of six board certified PEM physicians, so boarded in pediatric emergency medicine and EMS in the country. At the time when I first 
I only knew her as a pediatric attending working at the bedside with her. She so kind, so approachable. I did not realize how advanced in the career she was until I went to the National Association of EMS Physicians Conference. And when she walked into a room, how many people gravitate towards her? And I would like to think, one, it's because, yes, she is she's very, very knowledgeable, but she's just kind. And when I first got looking at, I sometimes review some of the past emails or some of the past issues that I got into when I first got into, you know, being a base hospital coordinator, I don't think I handled them as well as I should have. And I remember looking back, I don't know if I would have been, I would have been as patient with somebody as she was. And so incredibly patient, incredibly kind. She still reaches out to me to this day, but I, I didn't realize who I was speaking to at the moment. And so her for sure. But as far as patients go, especially in EMS, it's really, really difficult to not become complacent because many times EMS cannot do perform interventions, uh, critical care interventions, or any interventions that matter. Sometimes you're dealing with social complex social issues, simple things that people just don't have transportation to the hospital, and it's easy to get complacent. And so when I started working in EMS, I committed in order to prevent complacency, I studied five protocols a day, five protocols a day to be competent, right? And so there are three things that you could do to become a good provider. Skills, can't always replicate skills. You know, it's hard to get pediatric innovations. I've done one since 2006. Very, very hard to replicate that skill. But you can be competent in knowing protocols and you can have a good attitude. Attitude, competency, skill, those are the things you need to have. And so I remember I worked at a dialysis clinic when I first got my EMT license, long, long days. And at the end of the day, the, there was a janitorial service was there. We break down boxes together. And I really, really got close to one of the gentlemen there, he's older gentleman, and ended up leaving there, advancing my career, going to work at a uh, ground ambulance company. And his company also got that contract. So years later, he started working there. And I, you know, reunited with him and his wife, just great people, blue collar people reminded me of my, my grandparents. And I remember walking into the break room starting shift and I remember he was sitting on a couch watching. He's a big, big Bears fan, Chicago Bears fan. He was watching and I remember referencing a joke like, you know, Sylvia's got to do the dishes here and at home. And I remember his wife telling me he was sick. And so uh, long story short, I ended up talking to him, uh, putting him on a 12 lead, he had huge infarct. Uh, we ended up transporting him. He didn't want to go. And I remember having to get his wife involved with that, but he ended up having a couple stents placed, a cabbage a couple months later. And I remember going to visit him that night and walking into the ER waiting room. And I remember his family standing up, there's like 30 of them. And they gave me a, you know, me and my partner a standing ovation. He wrote me a letter and I actually pulled up the letter the other day. It's a handwritten letter saying that we're his guardian angels. And, you know, those are the people that like, this is why, this is why I study the protocols, right? This is why I study the protocols. It's few and far between, but we saved this person's life, right? Number one, we had a relationship with him. He probably wouldn't have gone to the hospital unless I had rapport with him. He probably wouldn't allow me to do a 12 leave. And this guy never went to the doctor, right? But to this day, I have contact with him. And those are the people that I went around. And of course, there's people that I've been around that I knew, you know, profusely diaphoretic. I knew this person will probably not make it to the hospital. And I remember them telling me, I'm not going to make it, am I? And having those conversations in the moment, talking about their children and being able to have conversations with their children after to say, I was wish your father, this is what he told me. That's that's why I did it. And few and far between. I can really, you know, maybe two or three times in my career have I had those moments. 
they weren't always necessarily good outcomes in the patient, you know, leaving the hospital okay outcomes. But as far as knowing I'd done my job and knowing I'd done whatever I can because I'm skilled, competent, and I try to have a good attitude, that's that's what keeps that's what kept me going, right? Because other than that, it's very easy to get complacent and have a poor attitude, really. Incredible story. And, you know, it, it reminded me of something I heard recently of somebody talking about how every interaction we have with a patient is that story, like that patient's story. And us as a character in the story, we have the opportunity to be the antagonist, the protagonist, yes. whatever, whatever it would be. And certainly you taking the opportunity to really be a positive impact within that patient's story, whether that story ends good or whether it ends bad being a positive character in the middle of it. I, I, I think that's just an awesome lesson for everybody. So thank you for sharing. I'm going to turn it over to Holly for a little bit, but Chris, again, it's just been awesome talking with you. Thank you, Michael. I enjoyed that. And I think anyone listening to this podcast who, you know, has a background in healthcare or really a background in helping people. I mean, those are the patients, those are the people that keep you going back and and make you want to be the best version of yourself that you can be because you want to be able to do that for someone else. I think that's, that's the anti-complacency pill for all of us. Right. So I do have a few rapid fire questions and they're really just so we can get to know you a little bit better. So we'll start off with one of my favorites. What would you be doing if you were not in your current role? So like outside of healthcare, what would you do if, if that was just off the table? You know, I, I love to fix things. I've remodeled homes. I installed a water heater yesterday. I would like to think I would go into blue collar. I, I I really think that that industry in more ways than one is not represented well. And so I think that's what I'd be doing. If not, try to go play pro baseball, which is a pipe dream. So, <laughs> so I just fix the water heater yesterday. That sounds, you made it sound very simple. And I feel that <laughs> honestly, what a lot of our blue collar workers do. They, they make things that are honestly so complex that I don't think I could ever do them. Although I've heard YouTube is a great resource, but the idea is they make things look so easy that really are not that easy at all. They are very complex and a lot of, a lot of love for those people who are fixers, because I am like a, I am like a helper to a fixer. So if you're a fixer, I'm the person who could support you during your fixing. I don't know that I would fix much else. I'm good with people in healthcare, not so much with like, you know, hammer nails, those kind of things. So, all right. That's awesome. So we got some favorite categories coming up. Here we go. Your favorite book. It can be what you're reading now, or it could be, you know, just favorite of all time, something you'd recommend. Unbroken. It's about the World War II veteran and prisoner of war, Louis Zamperini. It's a great, great story. If somebody is struggling with everyday life or resiliency, I recommend reading that book. I actually have, it's kind of crazy. I actually have two copies on my shelf. I I bought it for myself. I'm I'm a big book person. I have a library card as I think every person should. Um, But I bought it for myself and lo and behold, my husband actually saw it and he bought it for me at the same time. So I have like one that I lend out and one that I keep. So clearly great recommendation. Everyone, if you're listening, you should go check it out. It's a great book. All right. Favorite movie, or it could be a TV show. And again, it can be something that you're watching right now that you've recommended us or something that you're like classic. It's a must watch for me. Shawshank Redemption and Seinfeld. Ah, oh, classic. I love Shawshank Redemption. It's one of those movies that like, if it's on and 
I, I don't know if it's like Labor Day or like some, or the, I don't know. There's some holiday that some of these stations, they're like, we're just going to put this on repeat <laughs> and that's all we're going to have for the whole day. I'm not sure who does their scheduling, but whenever that's on, if I have access to it, I will probably just keep it on there because I feel like it's a movie you can kind of jump into at any point. It's very classic, Shawshank Redemption. And then Seinfeld, I mean, honestly, they were genius. Like, what was that show about? I'm not sure, really. But was it funny? But was it hysterically funny? And there are just, you know, you feel like you just got dropped in the middle of like, your friend's relationship, lots of moving parts. Like I said, core of what it's about, not sure, but it obviously worked because they were, you know, like 200 seasons or something, maybe not that many, but you know. All right. More favorites, favorite musical artist could be a favorite song of yours, but something that you'd recommend to us. Mm, I have, I love so many genres of music. I, I like Johnny Cash. I like everything about him. He's a deep well, deep well there. <laughs> How did you think about that movie from a few years ago? And it, well, it's probably been more like 10 or 12 years ago. And they did like his life and I forget who was in it. I know I'm going to feel terrible in a few minutes. Yeah, just like the movie that portrayed Louis Zamperini and Unbroken, you can't represent someone's life in an hour and a half. And I, I sometimes I think it does more harm than good. <laughs> mm. I, I will say that he, there is a lot yeah, there's a lot that they tried to summarize in because I think it was like a two hour movie, which, you know, that's nothing now. Right. Every movie's two mm-hmm. hours. But back then, I remember thinking, man, I wish we had more time to really like kind of lean into some of these parts of his life. His music still stands. That's it's good stuff. OK, oh, this is usually a very divisive question for our, for myself, really. But what is your comfort food or a meal that you really enjoy? Well, I just went to a place in Phoenix that serves chicken and waffles for the first time. Was it Lolo's? Yes. The the downtown location? Yes. It's the only one to go to. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how waffles, how you can make waffles taste that good. It's so simple to make. I, I, it's, it always amazes to me how these people can take something that is so easy to make and make it so much better than I can do it. And I, I, I tried to not eat that many carbs in one sitting, but I ended up ordering like two additional plates of waffles. You know, I, I like the way they treat people there too. I mean, I, I think that's really hard to come by right now. I, that's why I like going to the Midwest. I think I feel more like values or, you know, just old fashioned Andy Griffith values for lack of a better way to describe it. You, I found that there. I, I didn't feel rushed. I mean, I, I just, you know, the, the waitress calling me hun. And I just, I, I like that about those places. I really do. It sounds like a place I'm going to put on my list of places. Yes. To go. I mean, if you're going well, I mean, in we're, seconds. We're, we're totally plugging Lolo's chicken and waffles here, but I've been <laughs> to their location in Scottsdale. I think they have a, I think it's Scottsdale. They have a location there. I've been there a couple of times. They have a, a location in South Lake, Texas, but they're, to me, they're just nothing like the original one with the original people doing their thing. So Chris 100%. got me there. Got me there. <laughs> hmm. His Arizona, his 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 ties are coming out there. Michael's speaking from from his heart about his hometown food right now. So, all right, great recommendation. Okay, other hobbies or what is kind of like your self care go to? What do you do to kind of reset? I get that question a lot. What I do for fun? I'll be honest with you, that's a tough question for me. A lot of the things I do, I don't consider fun. I mean, I do a cold plunge every day that I despise. I do two hours of sauna, which 
I don't recommend and it's not an endorsement to do these things necessarily unless you speak to a doctor. I do that every Sunday. I will say what I enjoy doing is my son's baseball team is pretty good and competitive and they have these hitting competitions on Friday nights. And so I'll go and I'm the only adult out there making a fool out of himself and catching fly balls. That's the one thing I will say I absolutely enjoy and I'm not sure why, but I enjoy doing that. It, whether it's me and my son, him, my son hitting me balls or me doing it, but that's the one thing that I really enjoy. Awesome. Wow. Lots of great recommendations, lots of great favorites. I hope to get to check out some of these that you have recommended for sure. If our audience would like to follow you on social media, where can they find you at, Chris? LinkedIn. I'm not a big social media buff. LinkedIn, Chris Ramos, K-R-I-S-R-A-M-O-S. And then if you just Google Phoenix Children's EMS Conference, you can contact me there. And that's what I'd like to plug more than anything. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And we will have those on our podcast platform on the description as well. If you're looking to check that out, you can follow Chris there. Yeah. Well, Chris, thank you so much again for being with us today. It was really nice talking with you, not just about chicken and waffles, but about your career. It was really good to hear uh, your perspective and all that you're doing. Again, as I already mentioned, the things you're doing for the industry, the things you're doing to promote professional development, to to promote uh, better care, evidence-based practice of patients. And just really been great talking with you. And hopefully we can meet you in person sometime soon, but appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Michael Holly. I really appreciate this opportunity. I really do. I want to take this time to thank Chris for joining us for this episode of BCN and Friends. Thank you, Chris, for sharing your experiences, your expertise, and your passion with us. Your advocacy and education for pediatric patients is truly inspiring, and I know you're making an impact well beyond yourself. And to all of our listeners, we hope you will stay tuned as we continue with BCN and Friends and bring you new, meaningful content and perspectives. If you have a suggestion for an episode, please email us at bcn at bcn.org. I'm Holly Briggs here with Michael Dexter and on behalf of the entire BCN team, we thank and celebrate you for all that you're doing as professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. Until next time, we are out.